Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker Geist and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. So I have with me today Glennis Redmond, who is the author of What My Hands Say. She's a poet. She's a teaching artist. And I love the way you are also defined as an imagination activist. So first of all, I want to just say thank you for being here with me today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Um, I also understand that you have uh, earned the nickname Road Warrior Poet. Is that true? (laughs) Exactly. That's because no one told me that it was impossible to travel around the country as a single mom and put 35 to 40,000 miles on my vehicle every year, uh, spreading the love and power of poetry. So that's where the Road Warrior title came from. I love that. I love the way you phrased that even, just that no one told you you couldn't. I think so often we are stopped by somebody saying, no, you can't do that. And then we think, oh, maybe that's true. And then we don't just go out and do it. Good for you. I don't know. If if someone would have said it was impossible, I probably still would have done it anyway. But it was one of those things that when you're driven, and I, I know I'm playing on a metaphor because I'm driving, but I had drive on top of drive. And I felt poetry was a way to save my own life. And so I thought if it was useful for me, it would be useful for others. And here we are on the 28th year of being a teaching artist and a poet and a and, and road-weary warrior. <laughs> <laughs> You used the words uh, saved yourself, you know, that you that it saved you. Yes. Could you talk about what that means for you? Well, I'm talking about it literally and figuratively. I was diagnosed 29 years ago with fibromyalgia, and that was before anybody really understood the condition. They were, a lot of people dismissed it to, you know, it's all in your head, but I was a very physically fit person. And after I had my twins, uh, my health started to fail. And I was a counselor too for the state of South Carolina at the time. And I just was not feeling well. I wasn't feeling well physically or emotionally. And finally, I went on disability. And I remember my boss telling me, you need to take some time off. And I did. I took time off and I never went back. Mm. Lo and behold, I was watching Language of Life, a Bill Moyer special on PBS, and it was a poetry festival. It was the Dodge Poetry Festival, and there was a poet, and I won't. Her name is Lucille Clifton, and she. I won't recite the poem, but at the end, she said, "Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed." <laughs> wow! Yeah. And with a person, a person with fibromyalgia, with all, because it's a complex, it was, you know, muscle pain, fatigue, fog, uh, interstitial cystitis, which is a bladder issue, TMJ, it's a carpal tunnel. It's all of these things. It's, It's all of these things combined. So I literally 
every day something, all those somethings were feeling like that they were adding up to try to kill me. So when I heard her say that, it lit a fire in me. It did not cure the fibromyalgia, but it gave me a sense of, oh, there is something you can do to pour your passion and your focus into. And so that's what I mean, that poetry really got me off the couch, aka Lucille Clifton, and um, also a poet by the name of Rumi uh, Coleman Barks was reciting at that same festival. And He's a translator of Rumi, who was, I think, 13th century, 14th century, I can't remember which century, a mystic poet. And all of these words, all of these images came to me and basically just started to guide me and say, there's another way to live your life. And poetry was the other way. And so I felt like poetry just kind of reached in with its long arm and lifted me up off the couch, off my seat. Wow, that is beautiful. And I want to quote from one of your poems. You talk about making something out of nothing. Right, right. That's the uh, is that story. Yeah, that's the story. Yeah. It makes a, it, it brings to mind for me immediately the creative process itself. And um, yeah. Sure. So it's-, I, I, it's so interesting that you pick that line because if I have a through line, that's really one of the through lines that making something out of nothing didn't come from me. It came from my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother, who to me were the original artists and creators. They would never consider themselves. We're talking about people who are enslaved, who were sharecroppers, who were blue-collar workers, um, all amazing homemakers. But they were the ones who, if I would say my early professors were those women and they taught me how to make something out of nothing with their quilts, you know, um, and these were utilitarian quilts. These were not traditional quilts, um, quote unquote. I mean, they're traditional in our community, but they were made out of castoffs, you know, yeah. uniforms and curtains and outgrown clothes and sheets and everything. And, and that beauty, that rustic beauty taught me, you know, you use what you have at hand. It is no excuse to say you do not have the money or the funds. You use what you have at hand. And that's where I was schooled. You know, these women had their PhD in making something out of nothing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And and it calls up also one of the phrases that I know is repeated in many of your poems is that piece by piece, Mm. piece by piece. And you know, you know that's a play on words, right? So it's piece by piece, like piecing a you know quilt together, but it's also peace, as in wanting to have peace in the world. And the way to have that peace is to bring the threads together, bring all of this, you know, bring all of this together, and and some way we make an uneasy peace, you know. <laughs> Um, because, you know, it's it's hard to be completely peaceful in these social and political times. But, you know, these times, you know, I talked to my mother about it in 83. And please um, don't tell her I put her age out there. She would say, we've seen these times before. She she said, you know, I was born into these times. Your, your grandmother and your great-grandmother was born into these times. And so I have, I was born in 1963. I was born the day before King gave his I Have a Dream speech. So I call myself a King baby, mm-hmm. uh, a King dreams ba- dream baby. And I feel like my work has this uh, focus and I'm deliberate about looking at 
what makes us uneasy and uncomfortable because I don't have a choice. I mean, I was, you know, born into uh, South Carolina in 1963, where on my birth certificate, uh, my race was stamped Negroid. Mm. And, you know, I've been writing about that in the next work to come. What does that mean to come into the world with stamped Negroid or my parents went to Fountain Inn Negro High School? You know, just these these things have always been with us. So I'm always looking at how to make um, understanding and peace from those um, conditions. Yeah. It's really interesting that in the delivery of audio, that that phrase, piece by piece, we don't have a visual clue that's saying, oh, it's this thing. It actually, I think, increases that potential for us to find both more quickly. Thank you. I love that. It's so, you know, because I do think, I believe in audio. Um, so, which is what is a wonderful format for me because I get termed as a performance poet, which I don't necessarily claim that. It's just my delivery. People say, well, where did you train? I said, are you kidding me? I went to a Black Baptist church, um, Southern, uh, African roots. I mean, it's just in me. You know, I'm an extrovert. I mean, I, and I'm um, one of five kids. I mean, are you kidding? This is just not me performing. This is me being myself. But saying all that, you know, the Inuit believe that poetry is breath. And so when you hear breath behind a word or you hear this wordplay or you don't even know it's wordplay, I think that there, when you hear it in the poet's voice, the meaning can be pushed forth and it's layers of meaning. And you don't always, you're not always unpacking it consciously, but it's all around you. You know, you get you get it. And so that's why I love the audio and people can experience the poetry on another level. I think it elevates the form. Yeah. I think that's so true. That's beautiful. I love what you said about the Inuit and that the breath, inspiration, all of that pulling together into the, in this way. Sure, because I come from a call, I come from several call and response cultures, you know, you know, the the church culture, um, although my ideology is very different from what it was when I was growing up, but I still embrace the music and the call and response. The West African thread is in me, you know, the Southern thread, all of that give and take. And I think the audience, you know, is involved in the poetry in that way, because I think the poem is performing. I think we are, and I don't even want to use the word performing. I think we're in conversation. And we can be in conversation over time. It could be hundreds of years still in conversations. You know, all of these great orators. I mean, I know one that's been pulled up a lot lately because we just went through 4th of July was, you know, Frederick Douglass and talking about what does 4th of July mean to the Negro. And so we are in conversation with Frederick Douglass, you know, and Harriet Tubman and all these people who've gone before us. And that's what, what my hands say is doing. I'm in conversation with my great grandfather, Will Rogers, um, who I never met. Yeah. But I, because it's so important for our stories not to get lost. The poet's job is not the historian's job. We do want to be historically accurate, but we also want to fill in the spaces of a culture that did not have the ability to write it down. And so the artists will put their heart to ground, ear to ground, and say, 
what were they saying? What were their lives? And so that is the conversation that I'm having. And these poems are born a lot of times out of impressions of the land and conversations that I've heard uh, people in my family have. And, um, you know, it makes artists, I think, very curious people. You know, we're in conversations with people from the 1800s, you know? Yeah. One of the, um, in Don't Go Back, one of the poems, I was really struck with that urging, don't go back, you know, which is not, obviously, you're not in your poetry choosing not to go back. You're actually are going back and ha- continuing that conversation. But I, I think I was particularly noting it in these times that we have right now where more people are, where there's more media out there. Uh, I just personally just watched the documentary 13th uh, there's more people who are trying to, who are waking up to the systemic racism, the systemic problems, and the reasons why those were put in place by those in authority. So I just found that 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 don't go back. There is there is an energy around some desire to not look at that. Is that what you're referencing? Well, there, there's a line there, and it may be in the book um, and, other, uh, and other places, but even in that poem, Stories, and, and it's not me saying don't go back, it's, it's people saying don't go back. And um, because they're offended, you know, by, and my, my retort in the poem, I'm saying, you know, um, I'm not busy with blame. My eyes are intent on the stitch working the pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, and so the don't go back is a lot of times for people like, why, why are you, why, why go to the past? Why bring up all of this horrible weighted history? And my thing is, no problem has ever been solved by sweeping it under the rug. And America in 2020 is dealing with all of this sweeping under the rug of history and acts and events. And now it's coming to head in a way that it hasn't come to head before. And that's why we have these Confederate um, statues that are tumbling. This is why we're looking at our past presidents who were slave owners in different ways. And things that we've been saying all along, um, trying to get the Confederate flag out of the flag in Mississippi. It was in South Carolina on the state capitol and then to the state grounds. It took many, many years for those things. And what is the harm in that? And people will say, well, it's heritage, not hate. But my, you know, from my perspective, it's uh, a heritage that is rooted in hate. And if you don't look at the impact it had on African-Americans, then you're missing a really big point. And so, yes, have your heritage. I don't, I don't begrudge anybody's heritage. It's just when it impinges on mine and ours and that keeps us, because a lot of these uh, statues were put in place after, you know, to, uh, after, after reconstruction, after the civil rights to put us in our place. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting that these statues were cemented in a place that are usually central in a town to let us know what our place is. I was working on my PhD in uh, counseling psych in Richmond, Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University. 
And I would have to drive down Monument Avenue every day. And that was in the 80s. And it was like literally the cannon fire, the fodder, the rifle, the whatever was going straight into my psyche. Mm. And, And I ultimately left the program because I, number one, wasn't wanting to pursue academia. But secondly, I needed to really become a poet and start creatively dealing with these things that I felt. Let's take a moment to listen to one of Glennis's poems from What My Hands Say. Nature Lesson. 1947, at age 11, my mama learned how a rope turns into more than just a rope, looped around a branch where a tree becomes more than just a tree, where memory twists around more than just the mind, like Willie Earl's neck and my mama's young heart. In Greenville, South Carolina, mama sees how memory hangs on each and every limb. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Here at Pro Audio Voices, we love working with authors who have a big goal in mind. They really want to reach out to their audience around the world. We're here to help make that happen. It starts with our pre-production process, where we're evaluating and determining what elements of the audiobook we can leverage to both create an excellent listener experience for your listeners, as well as drawing them to your website to engage with you further. It continues on through the production process, making decisions that will enhance and support your big goals, as well as creating a great listener experience. But we don't stop there. Once the audiobook is live, we move on to helping you market your audiobook with the Audiobook Marketing Program. Come check us out at ProAudioVoices.com. To schedule a call to talk about your audiobook project, click on Get Started. Tell us a little more about your journey as a poet. You had mentioned a little bit about what inspired you to step into that. But I know in one of your poems, you're talking about as a, as a child, like that you, there wasn't that sort of broader picture or understanding about where your parents, grandparents had come from. Right. What, what they were, you know, why they were making the choices that they were making. So... If you could speak a little bit about about that and your journey as a poet, that'd be great. You know, it's so hard to tell the journey because I feel like I have entered into poetry on so so many doors um, and so many windows and so many times that poetry has come into my life to make me a poet. But I think as a child, I was highly sensitive, which is really hard when you're raised in a family of soldiers and athletes, and I was an athlete as well, but I'm not saying they were insensitive. I was saying, I'm saying I was highly sensitive. And so that made me an outlier with my family. I was always the one with my uh, nose in a book and always getting my feelings hurt, you know, and then always very strange, you know, authors were my best friends, you know, and it just didn't quite understand who I was, even though I have a very artistic and creative family, more musicians in the church, but I was the outlier, the the book nerd sort of person. But um, I 
really felt like we never call art art in our family. Art was kind of like that making something out of nothing. It's just what you do. You sing, you dance, you, you know, that's what you do. You express yourself. So I think I always felt like an artist. Uh, I wish somebody would have told me earlier that I was a poet because it caused, caused me a lot of distress um, because I was always taking in and trying to process these tough emotions. And I think the thing that solidified poetry for me is when we moved, my father was in the military and we moved back to the South in 1976. And it was a culture shock. We moved from Aviano, Italy to um, McGuire Air Force in New Jersey to Piedmont, South Carolina. And my parents never had the discussion of this is the context. This is what's going to happen. You're used to being around all people, all face, and you know. And now you're going to go, and it's black and white. And the civil rights movement is, for all intents and purposes, haven't happened. So you sit a sensitive being, soul, and down, plunk them down into that. I was just uh, obliterated emotionally, and. Um, so I had to come to terms with that. And one way I, I started to write and I had a teacher who had a, a, assigned a journal writing exercise. And in that journal is when I started to gain a sense of agency and voice and start saying, hey, it's not me. It's, <laughs> it's not me. It is this crazy place that I have been plumped down into. Not, and not to say I don't, I love my state. I write so much about my state. And I think that was really, in some ways, even though it cost me a great bit, it really gave me the leverage to own South Carolina. Out of all the five kids, I'm the only one born in South Carolina. I was born in Sumter, uh, Shaw Air Force Base. My brother before me was born in Everett, France. So I had issues with him being born in an exotic place like France and then me, you know, or like, where are you born? Everett, France. And I'm like, where are you born? Sumter, South Carolina. You know, <laughs> you know just, just I, I had issues with that for a long, long time. And then once I started writing poetry again, back again in my 30s, I started looking around. I had a lot of I have one particular artist, his name is Jonathan Green, and um, he is a visual artist. He's a Gullah Geechee um, landscape portraiture artist. And he really instilled in me, write about where you're from, know where you're from. And it wasn't until I went down to Charleston, South Carolina, and I thought I was going on a vacation. You know, that's the port where my people were brought in from West Africa. And that opened me up. And I, you know, teachers told me all the time, write about what you know. I didn't know. I really didn't know as a military kid until I started to investigate South Carolina. So learning about South Carolina and getting my bearings and um, standing fully in South Carolina and learning to love it as well as take it to task was me. That's what really made me a poet and part of my journey of becoming a poet. My father also, though he was in the military for 21 years, he was a jazz, blues, gospel pianist and who only played by ear. And so we had music in our household all the time. And so that gave me a sense of rhythm. You know, his ear, um, I'm, I'm not musically inclined. I'm a dancer, but I'm not a, a musician. 
But that fed my poetry, that rhythm. And then growing up in the Black church, the Black Baptist preachers, that cadence, that fed me. Um, but again, I have to point to my mother. Her, She's a seamstress, and um, she is a seamstress, and uh, an amazing cook. And her sense of timing, too, feeds my work. So I really see myself as a kind of a blue-collar poet, and that's not to diminish my work. That's to say, that's to fully embrace the people of the land and the people I come from. And so I'm trying to write in that vein. I mean, there's a lot of academic poets, and I have my MFA in poetry, but um, that work feels a little bit different. I'm, I'm trying to do something a little bit different. I'm trying to really be close to the land and close to the people. So, you know, no, no one has really fully made a living as an artist except for me. Um, I'm the only one who was crazy enough to pursue that. Well, good for you. <laughs> and it sounds like the the fact that you have did not all did not stay you know, that you didn't grow up fully in the South. That you had these other experiences in different societies, different communities where the black, white, that was not the issue. That was not a, you know, central focus to the community. Um, that that may have been really um, a great gift. It was a gift. I think it was a gift and a curse because I felt like I lived in a bubble for the first years of my life. It was so um, beautiful. Um, not to say it was, there was no racism. There was, but it was not to the level as it was in the civilian population. So, I, you know, the fact that you can mandate people to integrate, but you can't really uh, legislate the heart. And so we had sleepovers. We were social. Um, we went to interfaith gatherings. I, you know, my friends who were Catholic, I went to their service. My friends who were Jewish, you know, we all just all, we sampled. It wasn't so written in stone. It wasn't very dogmatic. And so I, you know, had this kind of lens of that's the way the world should be. You know, we are supposed to experience each other's cultures, food, and, and ways of being and not diminish it, but, you know, embrace it. It was just a matter of fact sort of thing to me. And so when I came and had this rude awakening that this is not the way things are, and of course my parents had it rough. I mean, and I knew about those things, but I did not witness them really firsthand until um, I came back to the South. And I think being an other or a vagabond or whatever outsider is very crucial in the work of a poet because you're not as invested in what people think about you. You're not that aligned to, oh, I got to do this. I got to be the, you know, this person for this. It gave me that sense of I'm on the fringe so I can tell this story. Yeah. These stories, I should say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I want to ask you about one other thing in terms of um, the, I know that you've done a lot of time driving on the road, uh, <laughs> teaching yeah. as a performance poet, right? Performing your poems. Yes. I would love to hear about some of your experiences or, or in general, what your audience what your audiences were like even and, and what kind of responses you were getting in those touring performances? 
Well, it was varied. And I, cause, because I, you know, I crossed into a lot of communities. I felt like I've had one of the best educations a person can get of America. Because when people start talking about America, I'm like, which America are you talking about? Right. You're talking about the powwows and, um, in Washington State? Are you talking about the Amish community? Are you talking about, you know, um, uh, the affluent in, you know, upstate New York? I mean, what are you talking about? Because there's just so many um, avenues into all of these different places. And so, you know, there are cultural differences, you know, and those differences are important. And I felt like I got school very early on. I Like I said, I grew up in a very Black Baptist call and response kind of situation. So when I did poetry, I'm used to people saying, uh-huh, gone girl, you know, hallelujah, you know, and, you know, talking back. And that is not a rude thing. Although I would go into schools and they would be like predominantly Black, but they were all white teachers. And I would come in and do a poem and all the Black kids are standing up in the bleachers. They're shouting and catching the spirit and going, you know, you know, just talking to me and the teacher's like, shh, shh, and think that they're being rude. And I, they don't understand that that's a cultural difference, yeah. that they're showing me a sign of respect because where we were trained, if you didn't talk back, that was rude. Right. Then I went to a Presbyterian church and I'm doing my poems and it is complete silence. And the thought bubble, if you could read it over my head, was I am bombing. I am failing. This is horrible. Get me out of here. And I would get finished with my reading and these people would get up on their feet, standing ovation with tears streaming down and would say, that was lovely. And I'm like, but why did you let me go? You know, but that is what I mean about the cultural differences. You know, I was schooled in that way. And it's quite beautiful if you think about it. You know, one is not better than the other. They're just different. And of course, I get more mileage when I'm with my folks and we're (laughs) going back and forth, you know. But there's just as much beauty in silence and this reverence of the work where, you know, there's not a clap after the poem. It's just that kind of sacred silence that you get in nature. And you know it's pregnant and it's full and it's beautiful. So, you know, I get perceived, you know, in a lot of different ways. Um, but uh, what I find once you get in there and you start telling your stories, that it's not, I think we can be fooled by what's on the outside because what hopefully is in any good poem or any good work of art is that there's a universal thread. Um, that's running through it. And so whether I'm speaking the colloquial tongue of my ancestors or I'm speaking um, as a teaching artist or a poet um, or I'm speaking about my, my my walk as a Black woman in America, hopefully there's a thread of humanity that's running through that because I've had people come up to me and say, you know, when you talk about your your grandmother, that's my grandmother that you're talking about. And, that, and that, that's people, you know, from all walks of life are saying that. You know, I had a grandmother who smoked Winston's and, uh, you know, and recycled and, you know, just was just, you know, irreverent in these ways that, uh, you know, people who were born in 1901 can be, you know. Um, And so that has taught me, you know, we have to just be ourselves and uh, let the stories do the work. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with me about this uh, and just really excited that uh, we're getting this work out there in a bigger way. 
Well, I want to thank you because this has been one of the tasks that I gave myself this year, you know, having cancer and then going through COVID throughout the year is to get this work on audio. And it's been the best medicine for me. And I'm just so excited about the book. And I'm really excited about having, you know, Lyric Lita Jones music being featured. She is actually... Um, one of my, my, I have twin daughters. She's a classmate of theirs from Asheville High School in North Carolina. And she would sing, we see her singing out busking. And so it's just one of these harmonious things. And then to have my brother on the project as well. So I feel like uh, Will Redman, who brought me this music for What My Hands Say, he did it about maybe three years ago um, of J-Pod, The Beat Chef. And he just, my brother's one of my biggest fans. He listens to my music in the car, my poems in the car, and then he'll make musical arrangements from them. So I don't know how more fan you can get. So this is, it is, it is. I mean, look what I did with this poem. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's so cool. So um, this has been a labor of love. And I I appreciate working with the team um, that you all presented. And it's just been powerful for me. And I um, look forward to doing my next book with you all, The Listening Skin, which is all about having fibromyalgia and cancer and living through poverty and racism. So yeah, beautiful. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Becky. Let's wrap up our time together listening to another one of the poems from What My Hands Say by Glennis Redmond. Footnotes. Where does history go when it hasn't been tended? I say it grows wild amongst the periwinkle, the turkey foot fern in my mind. There it is, right alongside my heart, heavy, like the mass of stones left on a hill, the only remnants left of the kingdom speaking of mountain royalty. King Robert and Queen Luella leased for 10 cents a day by a Civil War widow named Serpta. Their rule was over 200 acres of chopping, hauling, and toting. I understand the urgency, the need for self-appointment. I hear voices on the ridge. I hear them crying out, on the wind, about the uneasy quilt-stitch hearsay of their lives being left to myth and lore. Where does history go when it dies? Where does it go when corn cribs and makeshift houses no longer riddle the mountain slopes? When 40 years of hands culling comfrey into a balm comes to an end, where gospel songs cease? This silent edge is where I live, heartache filled with remembering, where history goes without a foothold. Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. Please take a moment to subscribe at audiobookconnection.com. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at ProAudioVoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us, and please join us next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.